Hello, church. Welcome to our worship time. Hasn't it been great just to sing praises to the Lord? We are still in the upper room with Jesus. We come to the marvelous chapter 17 of John's gospel. As Jesus has been sharing with his disciples and now prays for his disciples. He prays for himself. He prays for his followers. And then he prays for us, those who will believe in the message through what they say. We'll read it in portions. Let me just read the first five verses to you of John chapter 17. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. We come to this marvelous portion of Scripture as Jesus prays and realize that he says something so significant in that fourth verse. He says, Father, I have completed the work you gave me to do. And then he proceeds to tell us what that work is. Now, we can speculate forever as to why we think Jesus came and what he came to accomplish. But here, Jesus himself tells us that he had completed the work. The next day on the cross, he would say, it is finished. We recognize that he has completed what God sent him to do. It's become known as the high priestly prayer. Jesus has become our high priest. A high priest was one who spoke to men from God and spoke to God on behalf of men. And that's what Jesus is for us. And then the word says we are a priesthood of believers. A royal priesthood, Peter says. So we too speak to men from God and speak to God on behalf of men. And so we really need someone who knows us completely as Jesus knows us in the incarnation and someone who knows God as Jesus is God. And so Jesus gathers us all up and with all of the clout of Calvary brings us before the Father. And so we have the setting for the prayer. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed. Well, said what? All the things we've been looking at in John chapter 13 and following in these last few weeks. The meal, the foot washing, his declaration that he is going away, his introducing the Holy Spirit to them telling them how to abide in him in deep fellowship. And after he said this, he prayed. And he begins in a way that the Hebrews did not recognize, for they did not practice this way of addressing God. This was the domestic term for daddy. When Jesus starts to pray, it is this loving, loving word, daddy. Looking at what the next day was to hold, he pours himself in great trust into the arms of of his heavenly father. So we recognize this is a hugely significant time in the life of the disciples and in the life of Christ. Jesus comes at this moment in absolute dependence. He will later pray in the garden, not my will, but your will be done. He has told the disciples, I do nothing apart from the father and you do nothing apart from me. And so we have this connection that he gives us. He's in total dependence of God. And then he has absolute trust in God. 
In Proverbs it says, trust in the Lord with all your hearts. In Isaiah he says, he will keep us in perfect peace if we keep our minds on him and trust in him. And so Jesus has all this trust in the Father. He knows our needs and we can trust him. And then unquestioning obedience. Jesus had told them over and over, if you love me, obey me. So we have this dependence, this trust, and this obedience in the Father. And with that in mind, Jesus says, Father, the time has come. Now, Jesus has used that term nine different times in John's Gospel relating to his glory. Back in chapter 2, two different times, he says, my time has not yet come. In chapter 4, with the woman at the well in Samaria, a time is coming. In chapter 5, an hour is coming. Chapter 7, they could not take him because his time had not come. Again, in chapter 12 and 13, this time that he speaks of is the time of his atoning death, the time of his cross, the time of his conflict with evil and his victory over death. They had two words for time in their language. There was chronos, which we get chronology, the the ongoing ticking of the clock, the passing of time moment by moment. But the word he uses here for time is kairos, a special, significant, decisive time. We all have routine times in our lives that are just chronology, but we have momentous times as well. This time in Jesus' life opens up eternity for us. And Jesus says, glorify your son, that I too may glorify you. John writes this years after the cross. And he writes of the cross in terms of glory. The perfection of love, the the triumph of love, is the cross. And so he comes to share that triumph. And in verse 3 it says, this is eternal life, that they might know you. Now, in the Greek mind, to know was to understand the deity, to know about God. But that's not what Jesus uses here. It is the Hebrew mindset and the Hebrew term to know God in a personal, intimate experience. And so we have that fellowship and experience with God. He says, now glorify me with the glory I used to have. Jesus, with homesickness, is looking forward to his return to the Father. We have in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 this this full circle. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Jesus came that we might return with him to glory. He is our high priest and our brother. And so he has entered completely into our world and now introduces that next world to us. And so what did Jesus come to do? That verse 4 struck me so strongly when I first realized the impact of it. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. We don't think about this a lot as we read John's Gospel, but this is written up to 60 years later after the cross. The right perspective as a reader is to see Jesus as the risen Lord, the head of the church, the church that had been established and persecuted and was persevering during the first century. John looks at the cross and the events of the cross as victory. So it's late Thursday night. Judas has left the upper room to betray Jesus. Jesus has shared with the disciples in what we have called the farewell discourses. And now he prays for himself, for his disciples, and for the church. 
And the church is us. All those who will believe through their message. That filters down to today. And when he prays for, uh, for you and me, he prays for our world and all the things we can pass along. When he says it's been done, it's been done for us. And so he says, the time has come. Let me read the next section of the prayer to you, starting at verse 6. I have revealed you to those you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your words. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, so that scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your words. The world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. It was uh, 50 years ago when Reuben Welch was my college chaplain when he first succinctly brought these verses together for me. And as we pick out some verses from what Jesus says here, he says, I've completed the work. The next day on the cross, he will declare, it is finished. In verse 6, he says, I have revealed you. Verse 8, I have given them your words. Verse 9, I have prayed for them. Verse 12, I protected them. Verse 18, I sent them into the world. And down a few verses in 22, he will say, I have given them glory. And verse 26, I have made them known to you. And Reuben, in his wonderful, succinct way, said... Let's combine those and speak of the five things that Jesus said he came to accomplish when he said he had finished the work. He says, I have given you God's name. I have given you God's words. I have given you God's glory. I have given you God's protection. And I have given you God's commission. Let's think today about those five things. He says, I have revealed you. Your name. Names to us of a Western mind are just kind of a label that we go by. But in the Hebrew mind, the name was crucial for so often God changed the names of people to reveal character or the role they would play in his kingdom. Abram was changed to Abraham, the father of many. Jacob was changed to Israel, the one who struggles with God. Simon was changed to Peter, the rock. 
The early church took up this practice and Joseph uh, from Cyprus was called Barnabas, the son of encouragement. We recognize that God has names for us. What is your name to God? Have you ever thought about that? Are you steady? Are you dependable? Are you encourager? Are you prayerful? Are you joyful? What is your name as God looks upon your heart of hearts? At the burning bush, Moses asked, What is your name that I may tell them who is sending me? And God gives the essence of his character in his reply, Tell them I am that I am. I am the God who causes to be what is. And Jesus echoes that throughout his time among us. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. In chapter 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the light of the world. He says in John chapter 8, before Abraham was, I am. Aligning himself with God. Jesus shows us God's nature, God's character. So what is your picture of God? Is that picture Jesus? It should be. Some people, I think, picture a a strong, rigid disciplinarian as God, or a soft, loving, gentle grandfather. And these ideas condition our praying, our loving, our obeying, our feeling, our trusting, all by our image of God. But in Hebrews, it says, Jesus is the exact representation of God's being. We looked two weeks ago to the answer to Philip's question, show us the Father. He says, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus' task is complete in that he has shown us the true nature of God. He shows us the love of the Father. The next thing he says is in verse 8, I have given them your words. We really do need to take Jesus' words seriously. They are the very words that God intends us to hear. By the breath of the Holy Spirit into Jesus and into us. Now in Hebrews it says God has spoken many ways in the past. God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. John says it clearly in his prologue. The Word became flesh and lived for a while among us, and we have beheld his glory as the one and only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. He has given us the very words of God. And so we see those words and hear those words and strive to put those words into action in our lives. In the Old Testament, the word of God came through the prophets. Over and over it says, the word of the Lord to Isaiah, to Jeremiah, to Hosea, to Amos, minor minor prophet, major prophet, all the prophets heard from the Lord and shared that word with the people. But Jesus' words become a dramatic difference for us. He speaks the words of God to our hearts. And so we'll soon get into Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. He's going to say, judge not, and don't be anxious, and love your enemy, and in your anger don't sin. Live at peace with each other. Ask and seek and knock and be humble, and speaks of a real heaven and a real hell, and says we must be born again. What do we do with the words of Jesus? 
Jesus gave us the marvelous parable of the soils. As he said, the seed is, is the word of God. It can fall on shallow, rocky soil. It can fall upon soil that is filled with weeds that will choke it out. Or it can fall on good soil. What kind of soil are we for the word of God given to us in Jesus? He has given us God's nature, his very name, and he's given us God's words. And then he said in verse 22, I have given them your glory. What is glory? It's a difficult thing for us to pin down, but in in Scripture there are two different definitions of glory. The first meaning comes basically from the Old Testament, but it's weight or substance. We live in a day of celebrity for celebrity's sake, of style over substance. But God will not settle for that. I would recommend to you C.S. Lewis' books, The Weight of Glory. Speaking of the glory of God being equal to the reality of God, the weight, the substance, the meaning, the value, this is not something that is shallow or surface or glitter. This is the heart of who God is. And where God is, is the substance of truth. Life has no meaning unless there's an object of value at the heart of that meaning. God is the heart of of our lives, the substance of God's truth and his teaching. In this world, we just see a shadow of things to come. Paul says, now I see through a glass darkly, but then I will see face to face. I will know even as I am known. We read in the Corinthian letter that what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. I was a child of the 60s, uh, and so growing up in the Bay Area in the 60s and the drug culture and the hippie culture was all around us, and every time somebody would say something they thought was just really meaningful, some stoner would say, yeah, that's heavy, man. <laughs> I don't think they knew they were getting into a, a, a biblical concept. <laughs> but Jesus' words to us carry weight. This is a, a heavy concept, a teaching of the glory of God. So where do I get my glory? Jesus says, I have given them the very glory of God. On what is my life built? Is it built upon Jesus or is it built upon what I can do of my own strength? Some people's glory is in an ability or their job or a talent, playing an instrument or playing a sport or cooking or maybe their grandchildren or their possessions. But in verse 22, Jesus said, his glory is to unite us. And Jesus' glory was in his dependence, his obedience, and his utter trust in God. If my glory is in God, I don't have to get defensive that somebody might be doing my glory better than I do. Glory is not even in our God-given gifts, for those can be divisive. But our glory is in God and the substance of his truth in our lives. The second meaning in scripture for glory is the Shekinah glow, the the glory of God, the shining radiance of God. In Moses' day, it's shown over the tabernacle. When Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, there was this radiance that the disciples could barely stand the brightness of. A good synonym is radiance. I don't know exactly what that is, but God's radiance comes to us through Jesus. And we are to have a glow about us. Not only substance to our lives, but a radiance to our lives. God says he has given his disciples his glory. And so we must not only show that, but have it deep within us. 
The world has all kinds of things that bring them joy and worth and meaning. But Jesus said, I have given them your glory. It's not to come from the world. It's to come from him. Then look at the second half of verse 10 if you want a responsibility. Jesus has received glory through us. (laughs) We are to bring him glory by our actions, by our substance and our glow. It's to come from God. We glory in the cross, the self-sacrifice, the perfection and expression of his perfect love. So Jesus said, Father, I came and I gave them your name. I gave them your words. I gave them your glory. And then he says in verse 12, I have protected them. I gave them your protection. We think of the prevenient grace of God, the grace that goes before, keeping us. We talked about it last week in that step toward God, how his Holy Spirit guides us and protects us. After 9-11, we established the Department of Homeland Security. And a lot of people think, oh, we can find our security there. I have a grandson who's about to graduate with a, a degree in cybersecurity, and his skills will be widely needed. God says he has protected us. And if we seek our protection anyplace else, we will fall short. We participate in his very life. In 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4, it says, we participate in the divine nature. Isaiah says we'll have perfect peace in him if we keep our mind on him and trust in him. Paul gives it to us in Philippians. The peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We have the very protection of God through Jesus and now his indwelling Holy Spirit that protects us and keeps us safely in his arms. We have his protection. And the final thing that Jesus says he came to accomplish was to give us his commission. He says in verse 18, Just as you sent me into the world, that is, in the same way you sent me into the world, I send them into the world. We recognize this commission of Jesus to go and do his work. Listen to the words just before his ascension. At the end of... Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. We recognize that Jesus has given us a commission. He told them to tarry in Jerusalem until you are filled with power. And you will be filled, he says. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. We are commissioned to go. Not to just receive his teaching. Part of his purpose Part of the reason he came and completed that purpose was for us then to catch on and go with his message into our world. And so we recognize that we have this protection and this commission because we abide in Christ. In chapter 15, part of this upper room discourse, Jesus says, if you will abide in me as I abide in the Father. Hear the words, I am the vine, you are the branches. Chapter 15, verse 5. If a man remains in me and I in him, 
he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. We recognize that we must abide in him. And then he gives us everything that is his. In chapter 14 and verse 27, he says, I will give you my peace. In chapter 15 and verse 10, I will give you my love. 15, 11, I will give you my joy. Not just some generic peace and love and joy, the very love of God in Jesus Christ. And he says, because of that, the world will hate you. Remember, they hated me first. We are one with Christ in this incredible ministry. And so now, as we come to this commission, we don't come unprepared. But Jesus says in verse 17 of this prayer, Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As I send them into the world, I have sent, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. When something was sanctified in the history of the Hebrew people, it was set aside for a spiritual purpose. The lampstands in the temple were sanctified for that purpose. The showbread was just a normal loaf of bread until it was sanctified for a spiritual purpose. The water that was there to purify the offerings was sanctified for a spiritual purpose. He said, Father, I sanctify them. By your truth, your word, I set them aside for a spiritual purpose. That they might fulfill the purpose for which I came. He maps it out for us. We'll be looking at this the next three weeks as we look to Jesus' prayer for himself, for his disciples and the church, and for those of us who believe through their message. May we recognize that that's what he came to accomplish. That we have received his very nature, his words, his glory, his protection, and his commission. We are his. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you and recognize that your glory is our glory. May we find our worth in you. May we find our meaning in your love. May we find our purpose in your will. May our radiance be because we are part of your fellowship. As we have worshipped, Father, we have sensed your presence. We realize that you have called us to a world in great need, but you have equipped us to meet that need by the power of your Spirit. Guide us as we go into this week, knowing that you are with us and within us by your Holy Spirit and in the name of the Father. We love you and we give our lives to you in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and give you his peace. Amen. God bless you.